Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, very excited to be able to get Colin McDonald as a guest on our program. He is unheralded as an entrepreneur, doesn't get the kind of credit he deserves. He was a co-founder and, and worked really um, you know, heavily in the operations of the development of Clearwater Foods. And uh, I've known Colin for a really, really long time. John Risley was obviously the public face of the company and involved with all the high-profile um, activities of the company. But it was Colin who uh, was running the day-to-day operations and, and making sure that that company was a su- success. Uh, I really was interested in the story of how the business got developed over the years. It wasn't easy, obviously, uh, but, you know, they, uh, they built the company uh, up to and sold it for a billion dollars. And that's something that does not happen every day in Atlantic Canada. Yeah, that's right. No, a very interesting story. He talked about being a, I have in my notes here, a dirty hippie in the 60s, <laughs> uh, <laughs> traveling the world. He met his wife at a kibbutz in Israel. So a very interesting uh, guy, an interesting backstory, interesting life story. And and you're right, the entrepreneurial venture uh, with John uh, starting that company and the ups and downs and, and the, the, the things they went through. Uh, but interestingly enough, along the way, there were other companies, as as uh, as, as you'll hear uh, from this conversation, uh, Ocean Nutrition, uh, which was an omega-3 uh, fish oil uh, company that was, I think, the first big startup exit, sold for several hundred million dollars. Don, I don't know if you remember the exact amount, but it was a big one. So before they even sold Clearwater, they were they were they were in other ventures and creating lots of uh, economic value here in the region. Yeah, and a couple of other uh, ventures that uh, Colin was involved with, uh, um, along with his uh, brother Mickey, by the way, who's another interesting entrepreneur that we need to get on the program eventually. Uh, They got involved with uh, Cable and Wireless, uh, which was a big uh, UK-based telecom, uh, and also uh, Columbus Communication in the Caribbean. Uh, Both those companies uh, sold uh, for over a billion dollars as well. So, you know, uh, to be involved with three companies selling for a billion dollars, that doesn't happen every day, does it? And <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, uh, Colin is a, um, one of those um, tell it like it is guys. Uh, you know, he provided a very candid sort of assessment of his relationship with John Risley. Unfortunately, uh, like a lot of partnerships over a long period of time, that partnership is, uh, is now fractured. Uh, mainly due to, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, some family uh, issues. Um, he was the brother-in-law of uh, John uh, Risley. Uh, his sister was married to John, and that uh, that relationship uh, uh, broke up, obviously, and that caused the rift, I think, that now currently exists. At the same time, Collins moved on and has got his uh, own sort of venture capital companies, invested in a bunch of, uh, of, of ongoing uh, organizations, Got his sons involved in the business, and uh, you know continues to be kind of actively involved in the in the in the business uh, world. Yeah, absolutely. And another key theme that runs through the whole story here is one of innovation. They were the first company to freeze scallops right on the boat uh, as they as they harvest them. And there's you know, the you know, the listeners will hear other examples of innovation along the way that added that value to the company that ultimately led to the the sale of the company. Uh, interestingly enough, to an Aboriginal, uh, an Indigenous uh, First Nations group, 
uh, which which is a I think a, a nice um, exit uh, supporting the uh, Indigenous and First Nations communities uh, here in Nova Scotia. Yeah, in fact, uh, that fifty uh, percent of the company is purchased by First Nations, led by Member Two of Cape Breton. That's another organization that that we need to uh, get on the podcast. They're they're a really uh, huge success story. Uh, um, um, uh, they uh, partnered with a company in BC called Premium, I believe, which is a big uh, another big organization. And by all accounts, that's worked out extremely well uh, for both parties. So. You know that uh, that was a that was a big moment. Obviously, um, the only other thing that I wanted to add before we hear from Colin is that you know the McDonald clan are very generous, uh, quietly generous. They do a lot of things for the community that nobody ever hears about, uh, and if they supported many many causes over the years. And the one that I I do want to highlight because it was recent is that the McDonald family, including Colin and, and, and especially his brother um, Mickey, uh, they donated twenty million dollars to the QE2 Foundation for the creation of a special cancer care um, facility. And as you know, I think his mother was a nurse, if I'm not mistaken. So they, you know, they do have a, a sort of an association with healthcare. And, you know, um, this is a this is a big contribution and, and, and should be recognized. So I wanted to point that out. And I, I think people are going to enjoy this conversation because, frankly, this is a rare uh, opportunity uh, to hear uh, Colin uh, McDonald um, publicly, and uh, let's be honest, <laughs> a very con- uh, uh, candid conversation that uh, I think uh, a lot of people will learn uh, a lot about Colin and and what he's done over the years. Yeah. So with that introduction, here's our conversation with Colin McDonald. We are pleased to welcome Colin McDonald, co-founder with John Risley of Clearwater. Foods, and now the owner of Hand Mac Capital, his family investment company, to the Insights Podcast. Colin, welcome to our podcast. Yeah, thank you, Don and David. Very kind of you to uh, invite me. Glad you're on. Let's start with your family story, Colin. You came from a family of seven children and were raised largely by your mother. Can you tell us a little bit about that early experience and how it may have impacted your ultimate success in business? Um. My mom and dad got together in Newfoundland uh, during the war years and actually created my older brother, Jack, just after my father found out that his brother, Jack, older brother, Jack, was killed in uh, in Holland, 1945, February 45. Jack popped out in October of 45. My mother came over to Canada uh, from Newfoundland. She's a new, proud Newfoundlander. And... Um, in June of 45 and and much to the chagrin of her parents and friends because they told her not to that dad Colin wouldn't be waiting for her when she got here and of course she had to take a ferry from Newfoundland to uh, Sydney uh, take a bus down to the causeway take another ferry across the causeway because there wasn't a causeway there and then she uh, uh, took a bus into Halifax and lo and behold dad was there and uh they had six more children on top of Jack. So, and my mother worked uh, as a head nurse of the primary nursery at the Halifax Infirmary, the old infirmary on Queen Street. And uh, she worked seven days a week. She worked through her vacations. Uh, she was by times working two shifts a day. Uh, I would go down to the uh, bus uh, on Howe Avenue, uh, Howe and Dutch Village to pick her up 
um, I'd have to go down at 11 o'clock at night because she'd be asleep on the bus. And if I wasn't there, the bus would keep going with her on it. So I was there and I'd go on, wake her up and, and walk her home, which is only a few minutes up on McFatridge Road in Fairview. A hardworking woman, hardworking woman. And, and she taught her children to work uh, hard, very young. We did the, we shared the, the burden of the house. Um, I, I must've been particularly bad because uh, she would often come home and have me sit on the sofa and she'd lay her head on my lap. And the only reason she did that is she wanted to keep me occupied. She wanted to have me somewhere where she knew where I was. I guess the other six weren't as bad as I was. Um, so uh, early days, I went to work at 11 years old as a plumber's helper, uh, apprentice. Uh, did that for a number of years. Uh, ultimately got my papers at one point in time and uh, got through university and high school with the income stream. Uh, did a lot of other jobs. Uh just, I, I, it's a Newfoundland blood. It's the, uh, you know, mom came from a small island off Newfoundland and only 10 or 15 uh, families on it. And uh, fishermen grew a few uh, turnips and potatoes. And that was about it. And worked hard. All the, you know, had to work hard. Mm. So you and John famously started Clearwater by selling lobsters from the back of a pickup truck. How did you and John first meet and what led to the decision to get into business together in the first place? Interesting. My, my, I met John in 1966. Uh, he was taking my sister out, uh, Judy, and uh, John had a Corvette. And we were both going to Dow and he offered to, I was living at home at the time in McFatridge Road. And he, he offered to give me a ride in because we were writing our Christmas exams. So I was writing uh, biology or chemistry or math, and he was going to write history. So we, we drive to uh, Dal and AA building. I go in to write, and we agree we're going to meet after the exam four hours later. I come out four hours. He's sitting there waiting in the Corvette. He had left his history exam after five minutes or so, and he waited around. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, we drive back to along Almond Street to uh, – to uh, oh sorry along Oxford to uh, Fairview and at the four-way stop at Almond and, and Oxford he stops and then he accelerates and almost takes my head off you know the speed so I got to know him a little better over time um, Judy and him got married had a baby I was off traveling in Africa in the Middle East for a period of time, a couple of years, and uh, as a dirty hippie, and I came home to work. I had $50 left in the middle of, I was in Khartoum, uh, and I decided I better go home and make some more money because 50 bucks wasn't a lot. And I intended to go back to Kenya to teach school. Uh, I really liked the people there. And John uh, I was telling me about his... Uh, desire to have a lobster shop. And he said, you know, would you uh, do the plumbing for me? And because we had to plumb the pipes and water and da, 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 da. And I asked him if he had any money and he said, nope, he didn't. And so I said, okay, sure, I'll do that. So I went in and, and we started working together, uh, putting together the lobster shop. And it just, one thing led to another. It wasn't, um, I didn't 
we didn't agree uh, that we would ultimately be partners, but we were sitting there in the uh, shop one morning and, uh, you know, we said, uh, I said, Jesus, why am I still here? And he said, because we're partners. And uh, so at that point in time, the partnership was created and uh, it just sort of morphed from nothing into something. And uh, just around, we both had a great work ethic. We both put a tremendous effort into getting the business up and running. And the spirit that we shared at that point in time in our history was just, it was tangible. We worked seven days a week, uh, Judy and and ultimately my wife, Carol, who came over from Germany, who was South African, I met in Israel on a kibbutz. She, they they uh, would bring new clothes into us once a week and we'd rent a, a cabin at, at the Travelers. They wouldn't put us in the regular hotel because we stunk. We'd, they'd rent a, we'd rent a, a cabin and we'd uh, go up and shower and, sleep on a bed otherwise we slept on the floor at the uh at the old clearwater shop that's quite a story uh colin uh, take us through the key stages of development of clearwater what were the most significant moments of growth in the company over it over the time that uh, you, you guys owned it you know and and i thought through that a bit look we started in 76 august 10th that was really the step the first step in a long process we did well through the early years. Uh, we used to have lineups outside the shop. From We'd open at 9, the lineups would start at 7. We had uh, canners on, a dollar each, 12 a dozen, uh, and we do specials on Mother's Day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we just seemed to hit the marketplace at the right time. And with our pricing, we actually paid more on the shore. We drove the shore price up for the fishermen because it was cheap. It was 50 cents a pound. And we got it up over $4 in a, in a very short time because we started to export. But that that was uh, the, the, the retail experience was uh, very, very successful. We, we then intended to put retail stores at several places across Canada. We looked, we were putting one in Edmonton. Uh, we we're going to put one in uh, Vancouver. And we'd actually started to uh, build them. And we were going to put one in Victoria and, and one in Toronto. And the one in Edmonton, the mall owner, who, and we were doing our own building, uh, he had been building stores for other people, a strip mall, I believe. And he embezzled the money. So the mall collapsed and our store never got up and running. In Vancouver, we were, there was an old ferry boat that we were putting a shop on. And I actually was out there and had a picture with the minister of uh, whatever community of development. And uh, the owner of the, sh- of the boat actually sunk the boat <laughs> with the shops in it to collect insurance. <laughs> so, I mean, they, they, there was a, obviously a conspiracy against us opening these retail shops. In, in the meantime, while we we're in the process of really going down the retail route, we started to ship uh, lobsters. We, we made some connection in, in Europe through Clouston Foods, really, where we started to ship lobsters to the European market. And you, they have their own lobster over there, uh, Homeris vulgaris, and ours is Homeris americanus. Slightly different coloration and the like, but pretty well the same 
eating quality, et cetera, et cetera. Ours is actually superior. Anyway, we, we, we established a relationship with Clustons, did some shipping and really liked that business. And uh, so we started to become uh, much more active through the early, uh, the late 70s in shipping to Europe in the early 80s. Then my brother Jack and I, who and Jack had been was working with us at the time before he went off and became CEO of uh, of uh, several companies that were very very successful, and we went to J- uh, Japan and Hong Kong, and we had started working with JAL Japan Airlines, and we we went over and, and developed some customers over there, and they were very excited to get Canadian lobsters. We'd also developed some technology around storage much to the credit of a man named Max Swim, who was the owner of the buildings we originally were in. And uh, we ultimately bought him out and bought out the, uh, his, his holding facility and we expanded. We had some, uh, we, we always engaged biologists and uh, we started to hold lobsters individually in, in chilled water, in refrigerated water, so that it extend their shelf life. And we, uh, were able to successfully ship our lobsters worldwide with very low mortality, which uh, enhanced our value to the customer base we had out there and it would arrive in a condition that they could actually hold the lobster and, and have time to sell it. The, then in, in the interest rates went up to around 25% in the early, I'm taking a long time, so you stop me if you want. The interest rates went up to 25% in the early 80s and we had a, we had a vice president of marketing. We had a vice president of sales. We had a vice president of uh, business development. We had a, a CFO. We had a vice president of operations and God knows who else we had. But so I got everyone together uh, down in uh, an old house. We had be- behind the current retail store, they, which was an old gas station at the time. And I said, look, guys, you guys are all married. And I have to tell you that interest rates at 25%, we don't make that kind of margin, but we're going to survive. We just are going to have to work really hard. And I just want you to know there's considerable risk here, but we're going to, you know, uh, we're going to make it. And uh, I was smoker at the time and I had a cigarette. The group left the room so quickly that my cigarette went out. So they created a vacuum in the departure from the company. And I think that probably helped us uh, because it reduced our overhead. They voluntarily left. And, and um, John and I uh, managed to struggle through and, and uh, survive. Uh, mid-80s, we got involved with a company called Hillsdown Holdings in the UK. They bought uh, 22% from each, each of John and I. And we all of a sudden had sold 44% to them, minority position, and they funded our development from there. And we actually built the company up to a billion dollars in sales with operations in the UK and France and the US, Southern US and Western US and Western Canada. And we were in aquaculture, we were in processing, we were in fishing. And then about the late 80s, they ran into a bit of a snag because of British government changed the rules around or enforced the rules around reporting for public companies. And Hillsdown had been uh, setting, taking any surplus earnings beyond 10% and putting them into accounts to hold them for future earnings reports, something in that line. It's not 
100% correct what I'm saying, that caused them to either dissolve or sell themselves off. And they turned to us and said, look, we'll sell you the Eastern Canadian assets and we're on, we're gone. And so we ended up uh, owning uh, the companies that we had bought in Atlantic Canada, fishing companies, and the other fishing companies in Georgia and Oton, Oregon, and in BC and in France and England, they took over and ultimately sold off. They were the early early owners of uh, oh, the McCain company up in Toronto that my, uh, Michael McCain runs. It's uh, not a McCain. It's owned by McCain's, but it was a... Maple Leaf. Maple, Maple Leaf, Leaf, thanks. There, there you are. My memory's a whole. So that, those, <laughs> those, uh, that got us uh, through the 80s into the 90s. We ran into a few walls in the 90s. Same thing. The economy goes up and down the early days of e-com. Uh, we were successful and then everything went to hell. Early 2000s, 2001, we were looking to go public. Of course, you had 9-11. That delayed that till 2002. We had a very successful public um, uh, issue. I did a lot of talking across Canada, presentations, uh, carrying the ball and that. And then we, uh, in 2008, we got whacked with uh, the... Uh, collapse of the economy, you know, they, and they, we had a lot of, we'd covered our sales with foreign exchange contracts to create certainty in our sales. So when we're selling, you're selling globally, you just, you sell it, you want to get you $10 a pound, then you fix the contract rate, you fix it at what today's rate is, and you're converting it to the, the customer's currency, either yen or, or US dollars or British pounds or whatever, or euro. And unfortunately, we, the Canadian dollar was very strong uh, pre the collapse. Uh, we're trading at something like $1.10 US, $1.14 US. And then all of a sudden, after the collapse, it was $1.40 US or Canadian to a US dollar. They'd gone flip-flopped. And similar to the other currencies in the world, Canada really became weakened. So our contracts were uh, underwater. And the banks weren't very happy with that. And they decided that they, we had to pay them out. And uh, we did that, took a lot of money off our balance sheet. Uh, we had attempted a privatization, which uh, failed because the Icelandic banks that were the prime bankers in the relationship went bankrupt in the 2008 debacle. Uh, so here we were scrambling. We'd taken... We'd actually were at the 11th hour, one be stroke before midnight when this all happened. Our current lenders had already left and the new lenders hadn't walked in the door yet. And then all of a sudden they weren't there anymore. So we had to go back to our former lenders who all of a sudden extracted a huge penalty, uh, currency money penalty from us, took a lot of cash off our balance sheet and had pretty heavy rates and, uh, we were able to earn our way out of that uh, trap. We had some uh, cooperation from some of the banks, some of the lenders, but it was it was ugly for a period of time. And it was just a, a real hard struggle for the whole economy, for everyone. But it put you up against the wall. And uh, subsequent to that, business was running uh, extremely well. And uh, we'd made 
some substantial investments in new technologies. And uh, we decided to uh, bring in a CEO uh, and I stepped up to the chairman's role and, and uh, uh, he was uh, blessed with our new technologies such as the automatic shocking at sea of, of scallops. We'd actually converted the industry. We bought uh, 30 odd scallop licenses and bought it and bought them down to two boats, improved the handling, the quality. We, instead of landing uh, scallops buried in ice that were seven to 10 days old, we, we were freezing them at sea. And so the one thing about Clearwater, it was a terribly inventive, uh, innovative company and it was constantly investing in, in new technologies, new capital, new vessels. And it was all about market, what the customer wanted. Uh, I think of our greatest success was probably going to the marketplace. Instead of telling them what we're going to give them, we went and said, what do you want? What do you need? What's important to you? And then delivered on that. And delivering on the promise of the brand was our strategy, the entire uh, existence of the company. So when the company was sold, what were its annual revenues and, and the number of people that it employed? Um, and our rough numbers, uh, 600 million, 650, and uh, about 2,500 people. So I think it's safe to say that John was a little bit more the public face of the company and had a higher profile than you did. We'd like uh, you to tell us and the listeners how you guys broke up the responsibilities. What was your role in the company? What was John's role in the company as you as you built it over time? Uh, my particular skill sets were in running operations and leading people, uh, inspiring people to do difficult jobs. And uh, we had a very successful uh, business operation with people like Mike Pittman, Bob White, and uh, people who and Tony Jabor, people who reported either to them or started to lead organizations or parts of our organization. Um, John's was pr primarily to uh, do the banking side and be the public face with government. I've never had much time to for the niceties of the those world that world. I mean, yes, I've been there and I make speeches and I do all kinds of stuff like that, but. Eh, generally, I'm not interested in in that uh, part of the spectrum. It doesn't turn my crank. And I'll be quite honest with you, and I perhaps don't mean I don't mean to be unkind in any way, shape, or form. But it's more, it's less direct. It's more about uh, bullshit. No offense. It's it, that's not a good term, but it, it it is not. It is really all about. Uh, it, I don't know. It's what do politicians do? You know, they posture and they say things that I'm a I'm pretty blunt when I talk. By times, <laughs> Newfoundland roots. They're calling. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one time I was uh, giving a speech. I don't know whether it was at UNICEF or one of the events and there was like four or five, 600 people in the room. And the thing is, they're all talking. I get up to make a speech and they're still talking. So I get up and I, I say very loudly, fornication. And <laughs> all of a sudden everybody stops and, and looks. And, and then I said, for this occasion, and you know, there's some doubt about whether I said fornication or for this occasion, <laughs> you got their attention. 
Yeah, <laughs> uh, we're going to have to put a PG thirteen rating on this one, Nicole. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the years of ownership of Clearwater, you were largely running the company. John was pursuing other opportunities. When and why did you decide it was time to sell uh, Clearwater? You were still a fairly young man at that time, I'd like to say. But uh, what what was the drove your decision to sell? At that, that was seventy two. Oh, you were seventy two. <laughs> my goodness, you're you're aging well, my friend. Why? A couple of reasons why. One. We had been, uh, the, the conservative government had taken a liking to one of our clam licenses and they wanted to take it to give it to one of their compatriots. And fortunately they were defeated in the election and all of a sudden we had a liberal government. And then the liberal government tried to pull the same stunt. And now I, you know, we, we, yes, we had a monopoly in the clam business. We own the four licenses, but those licenses were issued to other people. We bought those licenses from other people. The other people sold those licenses because they, although there was a promise of making money, you actually had to invest for three decades to make the money. You had to come up with a way to harvest the product, to produce a quality product. You had to come up with the technology to process at sea. You had to come up with a marketplace. The product wasn't eaten. There was nobody eating the product. The alternative marketplace was the canned clam business that was in the U.S., which didn't give you a big enough return to go out there 200 miles off our coast and, and harvest uh, clams. The American industry, they harvest within uh, 10 miles of the coast. So it's a day trip. You go out, you harvest, you come back in. Us, if to sail out to the grounds was a day's journey and the cost of fuel was outrageous. So if you, once you got out there, you actually had to fish for 20, 30, 40 days to fill the boat up and then come back in and you had to have a call. So it took a lot of time and energy and effort, but one problem with success is that people become very envious of it. And, and one problem with government is that they often are as corrupt as, as anybody else who's seeking power and wealth and sad, that's a sad commentary on humanity that we become corrupt. It's not, it's, you know, uh, and I won't go that deep into that one, but the liberal government and, and the minister of fisheries at the time, uh, whose father was also the minister of fisheries when the cod collapsed, um, he said, we want to uh, take one of the license licenses and, give it to the indigenous people. So here are the, he, he set out a series of rules, which it's public knowledge. The indigenous people had to own 75%. The company that was going to be engaged in forming a partnership with them had to have the fishing technology and a vessel. They had to have the marking technology and a vessel and uh, et cetera. So, you know, we were the natural company to come to. But they awarded or they attempted to award the license to uh, a friend of mine in Cape Breton who did a deal with a local indigenous group. And he actually was going to keep 75% of the license in the agreement. And there, the indigenous group was going to get 25%, which was a flip-flop on what the rules were. He put the picture of a boat in, in play that he was he had. The owner of the boat, who was an American, uh, said, uh, what 
I sold that boat to the Russians a couple of years ago. I don't know why he's got it in the, and they, the guy doesn't have any marketing, certainly no international marketing. Actually asked me if I would do the marketing, if he got the license. We were being a, a public company and uh, it was easy to justify going after the licenses we co-owned and we had earned those over years and we developed the uh, necessary expertise to make them very profitable uh, and we created markets for the products that were aligned with what we were doing and uh, I you know I had a fear that the 2,500 jobs and the families that relied on it were going to be sacrificed under the uh, footsteps of some government agreed. Anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm getting off the point. So I, I wanted to secure the licenses and the company. Uh, the two natural partners for that were uh, the indigenous groups led by member two, because uh, we'd been doing business with them for a number of years. Uh, they have uh, access to other resources and they also the government's not going to attack the licenses if they're owned by member two or the and the and the the indigenous groups if they bought together to own the licenses. So that protected the licenses. On the other side, the business side, Premium Foods, a BC company, had been uh, chasing us or talking to us about doing a deal for Jesus, the better part of a decade. Really nice human being, uh, leader, uh, great uh, philosophy, purchase companies, leave the management team in place and consolidate their operations into one company. And they provided the uh, capital for the continuous investment because Clearwater is uh, heavily, heavily needs capital. We, you've got to improve your, it's not about just raping the resource and about taking them, everything off the table. You've got to keep investing to protect the resource and protect your position in the marketplace and fundamentally to deliver on the promise of the brand because seafood is delicious. Absolutely. As long as it's, you know, the industry when we came into it was an industry where if you, you sold a 20-pound case of haddock, you buried the bad haddock in the middle. And it was... You had to get rid of the hot potato. If, you know, uh, similarly in the lobster business, I arrived in New York one time on our tractor trailer and I'm unloading. We're about, I'm up in the back of the truck with my driver. We're going to unload the truck. The company we went to started bringing out, the, the, they started bringing out these uh, trays of dead, dead lobsters. And, you know, they bought them out, bought them out. I said, uh, what are those? And they said, they're your dids. I said, no, they're not my dids. My lobsters haven't even left the truck yet. Oh, that's right. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll sort it out with you at the end. I said, no, you fucking won't. I said, I'm Bob at Clearwater. And I said, this is my goddamn business. And you take your dids and shove them. And uh, the owner came out and said, apologized, said, oh, these guys don't know what they're doing. But in essence, what would happen is they would do a deal with the driver uh, and not necessarily my driver, but other drivers where <clears throat> they paid the driver off to take these dead lobsters that they had and pretend that they were 
your, his lobsters or the company's lobsters, the company that was selling. So they, they, it was always a cheat. You, you look, they give you checks that had two, had two dates on it or two amounts, anything to buy time and deflect and cause you to give them a credit or do something. It was a shysters industry, a real shysters industry. And we took the shysterism out of our side. The indigenous people, uh, member to, uh, like doing business with us because the people they did business with before were cheating them. They were misweighing product that came in. They were misrecording. They were, you know, and you arrive at a dock and if they, if you, you're, you, it's easy to cheat people in the world. It's harder to treat them with honesty and integrity. And we did that on both sides of the equation. We, we treated our, our business partners, our customers and our employees with honesty and integrity. Uh, we showed them they had value and we showed them that the, we could together make them, make them money out of the business. And that was a philosophy. Um, I always carried forward in the business. I had no interest in, uh, if I was want to be a thief, I'm not going to steal a few hundred thousand dollars or a few million. I'll steal billions. I have no interest in <laughs> Uh, Colin, uh, Clearwater was sold in September of 2020, I believe, for a billion dollars. And as you mentioned, a coalition of uh, First Nations led by Member 2 and BC-based premium brands. What was the biggest obstacle to successfully concluding that sale? Uh, there wasn't, you know, it was obviously government approval. The industry, I didn't like the fact that the uh, Indigenous groups were going to get access to the, those licenses, I'm sure, uh, and it 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 blunted, and I'm sure the uh, various uh, government officials realized that this would, or the politicians, this would blunt any effort to take away and share success with their cohorts or their buddies or their friends, and I I presume that would. Otherwise, we didn't really have a, a any sort of hiccup in the process. It went very smoothly. And uh, George from Premium Foods, I knew him well. He was—he was a man of integrity. He, when he made a deal, he made a deal. And the member two leadership, uh, Chief Paul, uh, salted the earth, and he saw the value in uh, the licenses and being part of the fishery. And he wanted—he—he's about his people. Now, there's a man who—who's really dedicated. To improving the future of his people, and he bought together uh, the other indigenous groups that are part of the coalition. And you know, I take my hat off to him. I, he actually comes and speaks at the UNICEF dinner that I uh, chair each year in Halifax. And I, I look, there wasn't any obstacle. My the perhaps the biggest uh, thing was that I had to turn the page on. On my own life, I was 72, you know, uh, when do you retire? When do you stop? When do you, and, and, and again, it was all about uh, protecting those jobs, protecting the future, protecting the, the philosophy and the strategy that was Clearwater. And uh, fortunately, the company went forward with uh, majority and most of the individuals who had been intricate integral in in uh, in uh, building the business and and being part of the business over the years and uh, like they're carrying the, the torch on 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. So looking back, it's already been a couple of years. What is your view of how things have gone since the sale? Uh, I don't have intimate knowledge of the business anymore, uh, but I do know and talk with some of the people who are still uh, at the business. They're, they're friends uh, and they're happy. They are proud. Uh, they're doing well. The company's doing well. Uh, it, I think the, the, we sold it to the right people, to the right partnership. You, uh, I think Premium Foods brings the financial capacity and, and understanding to the equation and the Indigenous uh, group, Chief Terry Paul, et cetera, bring uh, protection of the resource and a fundamental understanding of the importance of the resource. And, and they also bring a large contingent of young people, which we'd already started to engage in the business uh, on the vessels in our plants uh, and enter into training programs with so they could become captains and uh, part of the general uh, milieu of the company. It's a, I think it's gone well. I think from everything I've heard, it's gone very well. So we understand your brother Mickey was also a significant shareholder in the company and that you and him are now uh, in other business ventures. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're involved uh, with, uh, what kind of businesses you're involved with these days with your brother? Well, Mickey and I have had, in the early days of Clearwater, Mickey drove truck for us. I fired him a number of times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, <laughs> that's all in the family. We, you know, it's uh, the one thing about our family is we're very tight and we love one another and we don't really uh, take much offense to anything. Uh, he's, he's, uh, Mickey's a very, 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 very independent human being. He's, you know, his, if he's leading something, he's leading something. And so anything we do together, either I'm leading it or he's leading it. He's not interested in, in, uh, and so we, we work well that way. My, the company Handmac, uh, Handmac Capital is, uh, really me transitioning to my two sons. As I often say, it's my past and their future. And Handmac invests in uh, a variety of uh, businesses uh, that Mickey Earn is involved in some as a, as a shareholder, as a partner. And we owned McFarland's and we recently sold it to Sunbelt. We own, uh, bought Straight McKay and Mermaid and, and, and combined them into Maritime and doing very well there. And we own uh, Best Buy Health Services, uh, uh, Maritime Beauty, a company called Axis, and uh, AAG up in uh, Ontario. And we look for healthy businesses uh, uh, that we either buy outright ourselves. We typically uh, keep the owners around for a period of time. They're the builders of the business. We're looking for healthy little businesses. And, with proud employees, look, I, I knock on wood this through this whole uh, debacle of COVID, etc., and and people leaving companies. We have not lost people, and I think the uh, that's that says something great about Atlantic Canadians uh, generally and uh, the leadership of the companies that we've uh, acquired and and put people in charge of. Uh, so again, it's, it's really something my son is driving to 
future there. And and we do, yes, uh, we have some partnerships there that we're, we're the major partner in them and we just move forward with our strategy. And, and when I do something with my brother, Mickey, he's generally the major partner because he's... Uh, <laughs> Colin, we have so many questions to ask, but we're we're, we're running out of time. But I, I do want to ask uh, uh, a couple of questions about uh, your long relationship with John. I, I think you were involved with a bunch of activities beyond um, Clearwater, like uh, Ocean Nutrition, that was sold for $500 million, I believe. Columbus Communication, that was sold for $2.3 billion. And cable and wireless that was sold for seven point eight billion. I mean, those are really successful stories. A lot of people don't know about that involvement, but you know, you had a successful partnership over decades. And and I know from personal experience, it's hard to maintain partnerships over a long period of time. Why was your partnership so successful over such a long period? And um, and and maybe you know, why are you no longer uh, doing things with John? I think the reason the partnership was successful, the early days, we became very close. He, uh, and he was a brother. He was married to my sister and his children Mm. were my niece and nephew. That might speak loudly about why we aren't partners anymore. And uh, John changed. I'm, and look, I'm not a public figure. I'm not interested in being out in the public. I don't need to do that dance. He needs to. It's his world. He likes mm-hmm. to be out there, and and although he's he's a very private individual and very uh, quiet, normal person, there's a segment of him that likes to be out in that world and and be seen as the billionaire, and you know he's a smart man, uh, just not my cup of tea. And uh, we were a good partnership because we both bought uh, particular assets to the table capabilities. I, I guess it remains to be seen whether we're as successful uh, not together. Um, there were other people involved in each of those businesses that you mentioned, Columbus and and ONC, uh, that were responsible for the success uh, of the business. Um, interesting. Uh, I'll tell you just a quick story on on the sale of ONC. We were we were in negotiations with. Um, the company that was going to buy ONC and they uh, we'd started off at $390 million and they'd got it down. There was, I went to, I was, was not on the board. I was just a shareholder. And we went to, uh, went to these negotiations meetings and discussions and they'd gotten it down to, and I went to the board meetings and they gotten it down to three, 300, 320. And uh, Richardson's from Winnipeg were also minority shareholders on it. And, I, I took John aside and I said, John, look, these guys are chiseling us down. And he said, no, 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 it's a big corporation. They don't do that. I said, yes, they do. These are just employees. They want to impress their bosses. I said, this, is going to, this isn't going to go anywhere. They're going to get us down below 300 on this business before they close the deal. Anyway, he dismissed that. Fortunately, Richardson's and uh, just got fed up with it and we... The, the group ran out of time to close a deal because they couldn't get it together. And then we put it out on, an, on a bid process at an auction. Same company came back and paid $500 million for it. <laughs> That's a good story. 
Uh, you, 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 you can't, you know, don't be naive. That's all I'm saying. You can't be naive. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you've already mentioned your uh, your investment uh, company and, and, and using that as a vehicle to uh, to transfer to your sons, I guess. Can you just tell us what role your family members are playing in your investment role uh, company uh, today? Yeah, my two sons and my wife are, sh- are board members uh, with me. <laughs> and it used to be that I made all the decisions now. Uh, there's a threesome that works very close together. <laughs> I don't uh-huh. ask permission for anything. And as I just said to my wife a few minutes ago, I told her she was in charge while I was up here doing this. And she said, I'm not only in charge then, I'm also in charge when you come back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I look, hey, it's, it's their future. I love them dearly. I love, you know, I, family's everything to me. So it's, uh, I'm good with it. I'm there as an advisor. Uh, they're going to, they, they're and I've often told them, you only learn by making mistakes. You only, if success brings arrogance, mistakes brings knowledge. So you got to learn. I'm while I'm around, learn as much as you can. And, you know, when I'm not here, you do what you do. I don't really want to control them or what they do once I'm in the grave. It's, or, you know, a home right. for the mentally demented, which they may put me in. <laughs> so you've mentioned a couple times about the jobs and the community impact of the company. That seems to be a passion of yours. Can you, do you have any thoughts on what the, the greatest economic opportunities for Nova Scotia and the rest of Atlantic Canada are these days? Do you have any thoughts about what those opportunities could be? Uh, you know, one of the, one of the, um, Things I learned when I was a young man, I, I hitchhiked out west in 67 by myself and ultimately got a job out there uh, and as a prospector and used to go back uh, over a number of years while I was in university and et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I, the character of Atlantic Canadians is so well respected as a worker as for their work ethic. Um Atlantic Canadians, if you go to Alberta or BC and you tell them you're from Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, you're hired immediately because it's assumed you have that work ethic. We're not, we have not become sophisticated to the level where uh, we are looking to get paid for nothing. We show up on the job and we do the work at hand. And we're not, I, you know, I was a laborer for in many situations and I was happy to do that. And I did my job and I, you know, you get promoted or they'd ask you to take more responsibility, et cetera. And I was happy to do that. I think that brings, I, I think Atlantic Canadians are, have at their core, uh, such a strong work ethic that they can take on tasks that others won't and don't want to. I think life is about family. It's about community. It's about happiness. It's about sharing. Uh, I see it in the companies we have in Atlantic Canada. Uh, McFarland's was a wonderful company, wonderful people, amazing uh, work ethic, amazing intelligence, amazing uh, uh, success. Um, uh, they, I was sad to see us uh, part with that, but it was the best thing for uh, uh, McFarland's, again, to protect the underlying business. Uh, and similarly with Maritime, uh, which is uh, Straight McKay and, 
and Mermaid. I mean, insanely strong people and loyal and proud and hardworking. And that's the small communities in Atlantic Canada. I think perhaps one of the things that we should be leery of is the enlargement of a the cities and the, uh, the shrinking of our small communities. I think small communities, uh, people know each other, work closer together. And, and I think industry in those areas or operations or in, initiatives in those areas uh, can be far more successful. The problem is you dehumanize people when you put them in a large city. I mean, look at New York or Boston or some of the big cities in the world. You just don't have that intimacy and you're always wary of, you know, if somebody's going to rob you or, you know, somehow. And and small communities, you have trust. You have uh, neighbors. you supportive. You believe in each other. And I think that if we could get back to the creating more small communities and having community involvement in processes, decisions, jobs, businesses, you we we have a, a much brighter future. And, and, and life isn't about how much money you earn. It's about how much you, uh, as Churchill said, how much you give. Well, that's a good um, segue into this last question area. We wanted to ask you a little bit about your philanthropic activities uh, and your focus on the community. What what are the causes that interest you the most um, in terms of investing in the community through philanthropy? Well, I'm, I look at the disadvantaged uh, children, uh, the elderly, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not, sorry, I, and I don't have, you know, the art galleries are wonderful and the, that sort of stuff. It doesn't strike me as something that is fundamental to good lives. I'd like to see, you know, the QE2 donation that we made was really around trying to help the health system so people wouldn't be taken away from their families. And, and uh, uh, I'd like to do more stuff in the community, but I, I help UNICEF, if you like, uh, Bonnie Lee Farm down in Chester, uh, a wide spectrum, and, and Phoenix House, and we're, you know, we're, we look we look at uh, organizations that give back to the community. Red Cross, uh, one of the um, gold uh, charities that you can get involved in because it has so many volunteers involved with it. Children's Wish when it, or Make-A-Wish as they now call themselves. Uh, that's, you know, anything that, anything and everything that can make the world for the average man better. Um, you know, I see the stories in the paper, uh, which are heart-wrenching, you know, uh, food banks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, you know, you don't have to be extremely wealthy to um, help. You, you know, everyone can help. And it gives you, and again, back to Churchill, it's not what you make, it's what you give. And uh, my mother taught us that. And, you know, uh, I know, you know, dad would come home and have been given, uh, he drove a Cadian line bus for a, a long time. And, uh, he would have been given some uh, bread or whatever lobsters from some of his passengers that he knew going down to Herring Cove or the like. And from those small communities, they would give the bus driver something. When he come home, he'd have this. And 
he'd, you know, we'd keep part of it and he'd send us uh, up to the uh, neighbors who were a lot worse off than we were, the Barretts or the like, and, and, uh, and uh, share. And, you know, when you got nothing and you're sharing what you got, it's, it's pretty meaningful or certainly was meaningful to me that, you know, it was, we could have kept it all, eaten it all, but so there's a, a fundamental sense of sharing that, you know, makes the community stronger, makes our human being, makes life stronger, makes our lives more meaningful, more uh, worthwhile. Colin, you and your brother, Mickey, are very well known to be philanthropic around the community. And most of that charitable work uh, is done without a lot of fanfare. Your family recently donated $20 million to the QE2, a transformational gift that will help fund a special cancer care center. What attracted your family to this particular cause? Uh, my medical doctor, Howard Conter, threatened to cut me off if I didn't step up. Um, <laughs> Howard was the primary. Uh, he asked. Um, he's a very, very, there's a very kind human being, I can tell you. He does, he does a lot yeah. for the community. A lot yes. Of um, I, you know, uh, our mother was the head nurse of the primary nursery at, at the Halifax Infirmary, which is connected with the QE2 now. Uh, that was, you know, uh, very important in the decision and, and the desperate need for better health care. You know, we, I read the stories, I see it, I, I, People are, are, you know, if you if, it just people are desperate and uh, health care is a big factor and it's just not being supported the way it needs to be supported. Uh, and do I have the solutions? No, I don't. But they, uh, the advances in health care that we, were, we, we helped to fund with that donation uh, are very meaningful to the population of Nova Scotia, Halifax, uh, the Maritimes, and um, I—it's no different than the the donations we've made to the IWK, the work I've done there on the board. Uh, as to, as it's, it's just uh, the people, the healthcare workers, the doctors, the nurses, and these facilities are to be admired and supported and helped. Um, I took my, and I'm I'm off your question a bit, but just give you some background. My son, Luke, when he was four, was misdiagnosed by a doctor down in Chester Basin. And I took him into the IWK because I, the guy had just prescribed uh, uh, antibiotics. And I got to the IWK, to the emergency, and was taking him in and, and uh, hadn't, re hadn't even registered, hadn't told him the name. A couple of nurses heard him came out, grabbed him, took him and put him in a tent because he had asthma, he had bad asthma. And uh, they, I said, what do you, where are you going? He said, don't worry, we're going to put him in, you know, he's got asthma. And I, and then in talking with him, I showed him the antibiotics that I had been given for Luke and they, they threw those in the garbage can. And uh, I spent the nights sleeping with Luke in his bed there uh, on a ward and the nurses were worried I'd roll over on them, but that would never have happened in a million years. But I would sleep there with them and I would watch the activity on that ward. Children being 
treated by nurses, the nurses on duty there who were obviously busy and tired and treated like they were their children. I mean, there was so much love and attention given to these patients. I've seen the same thing in the QE2 uh, when I've been in there and on occasion for various uh, reasons and recently in there for some testing. And I, I just watched the people and how hard they work the nurses and the receptionists and, and the doctors and what they do for everyone. And it's, it's inspiring. It just, and we couldn't do any less. I mean, we were approached uh, and asked to be supportive. And the same thing with the IWK, when I've been asked to be supportive, I step up uh, as much as I can. Uh, it's, they deserve it. They're working so damn hard to keep us healthy and keep us alive and keep everyone healthy and alive. They deserve it. They deserve to have the support of the community and of the business community in particular. Colin, um, I want to thank you for joining us on the Insights Podcast and telling us about your entrepreneurial journey, which is fascinating. Congratulations on all your success and everything you do for the community. Thank you very much. Be nice to see you guys. Nice to talk. Hopefully the podcast is not a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.